Hi, I'm Maris Kreisman. Welcome to the Maris Review. I am joined today by someone I feel like I know, but it's really just through the internet. <laughs> Annie Hartnett is the author of Rabbit Cake, which was listed as one of Kirkus Review's best books of 2017 and a finalist for the New England Book Award. When she began writing her second novel, Unlikely Animals, she was living in the groundskeeper's house in a cemetery. She now lives in a small town in Massachusetts with her husband, daughter, and darling border collie, Mr. Willie Nelson. <sighs> Welcome, Annie. Thank you so much for having me. And I feel like I know you too. <laughs> <laughs> it, it took me until I read your author's note at the end of the book, and this is not a spoiler per se, <laughs> to fully grasp the idea that Corbin Park is real. <laughs> I, I really thought it had to be an invention. Tell me about the lore of Corbin Park. Yeah, so this place, I mean, so when, you know, you just read in my bio that I was living in a cemetery when I started the book, which is where I lived in, um, when I was an MFA student in, in Alabama, I moved there right after a tornado. And so a lot of the graduate student housing had been sort of really damaged, if not totally gone in the tornado. So we moved into a house that was that was in a, in, really in, in a graveyard. Um, and so I was writing a book there, but right before I left, I was writing Rabbit Cake, but then I had a pro professor who said like, start another book too, so you'll have something on a, in the back burner. Um, so I started this book there, um, but it was a really different version. There was actually, it had nothing to do with the graveyard. I was, I was writing this book for many years, in the background of writing rabbit cake, which was about a, a woman who returned to a town and was a substitute teacher. But I was not very much in love with it for a long time. And I was, it just like paled into comparison to how I felt about rabbit cake. And I, I have a friend, um, Tessa Fontaine, who is wrote this amazing memoir, The Electric Woman. And she, we, we started talking about second books and she was like, is just the first cut is the deepest. Like that's the only one you really ever love. And so maybe I, I was like trying to work through that. And then in 2008, uh, maybe it was, it was end of 2017. So Robbie Kate came out into that 2017. So I'm up in New Hampshire visiting some friends and I am driving along this like forested road covered bridge little pond there's really not much else on this road and i look up and like sort of from the heavens there's this enormous yellow mansion that looks like the nicest hotel you've ever seen and i'm like ask my friends like what is that place and they had just moved there so they had not seen it before and they didn't they had no idea so i google you know newport new hampshire enormous yellow mansion it's not a town where there's any other mansions um find out that it's this gilded age um robber baron who had retired there and he had been born there and he moved back there as his as his like retirement home and he knocked down the house he was born in except for the room he was born in wow. and i don't really know if that's completely true but that's like the mythology of it which i just think is so creepy and weird another another person told me it was like he kept the house and built the mansion around it but whatever it is he built it somewhere around that house and uh it's this huge beautiful onion domed mansion 
And so I think that that's very interesting and cool, especially it's still in its beautiful um, grandeur. And then I find out that there's, that has his retirement project, he bought up 60 farms and fenced it all, all that land in and it be, it became Corbin Park. His name was Austin Corbin, and it's a um, twenty six thousand acres that he and he shipped animals from all over the world. And it, it was I love animals, and this just was so wild to me. Um, so I start, and then I discover, but I didn't really wasn't thinking I was going to write about it. I was just like, I just found this cool thing, and um, then I find out that the park is still there today and that it's still intact as 26,000 acres and it's still and it's private property it's now it was sold out of the corbin family after they were like all bankrupt after world war ii um and so they that it's still there it belongs to about 25 anonymous millionaire hunters who just like each have a share of the land um and I was fascinated with that because I was right. I, I will always write books that are sort of set now ish or like recent mm -hmm. history because I like my characters have cell phones and use the internet and like tell yeah. jokes that I think are funny. <laughs> um, and so I started researching it anyway because I was just obsessed and my friends had a place up there I could stay. So I started going to the historical societies in the area. So as I'm in the historical society, researching uh, the, the Newport Historical Society. There's a couple of historical societies because the park spans five different towns. Sure. So I went to a few, um, but I'm sitting in the attic up there just going through the stuff. And I found this guy, Ernest Harold Baines, who was a naturalist for the park from 1904 to 1925. Um, and he was a real life Dr. Doolittle with animals in his house, um, fox, bear, two bison uh well the bison i don't think everyone in the house but um <laughs> he had a deer that did go in the house um and a uh well those those are the main ones um the bear and the fox are the ones that are show up in my book um and then he so i was just obsessed with him and then started talking to people about him and then when I think that the real final thing that locked in into me was I was like, he belongs in my book. When someone said, I'm sitting in the library talking, asking questions about Ernest Harold Baines and this guy sitting at the table just goes, who wasn't even like the librarian. He was just some guy. Who, I mean, he's not some guy. He, he's a historian <laughs> of his own, but he's just sitting there and he overhears me and says, oh, he was quite the womanizer. Mm -hmm. and as though I'm talking about someone who still lives in the town, you know, and he, this guy died in 1925. And that was just so amazing to me. Um, so because that was already kind of going on in the book with the dad who is, mm -hmm. who is you know, um, who is dying in 2014 when the book begins, who is, um, who is a, a woman, he's, uh, he's a womanizer. Yeah, sure. And um, so the, at that point, I made Ernest Harold Baines a ghost in the book, and he was the first ghost who appeared. And then I'm able to, because everything's in public domain, only it's only been in public domain for like two years, all his writing. So I'm able to put his real writing and his photographs in, in the book. Um, although I, and then I'm then also able to mess with them because they don't public domain. Public. It's like, so, uh, but they're real stories about the animals. 
Um, so it's everything the best version of fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, totally. You could just copy and paste. So once you grasped hold of the idea that he would Harold Baines would appear as a ghost, then you had to kind of create rules for 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 this world that you're depicting. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. So um, the rules came about, so Ernest Harold Bain showed up as a ghost um, and I didn't have to worry about the rules until I, I started adding ghosts. So at first it was like, I wanted to write this. And I know you like him too, I think from Twitter some, at some point. Um, I wanted to write like a John Irving type, like omniscient narrator who knows everything. Um, but what I had was a omniscient narrator who had too much personality. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't the, the, an omniscient narrator who knew everything, but also was like always cracking jokes. And so I had a friend, um, Lucas Mann, who said, you know, who is talking? And I was like, don't worry about it. I don't care. And then so I was up at McDowell and I was like, I should probably address Lucas's concern at this point. And someone should be talking. And that is where Thornton Wilder wrote Our Town. And so, you know, it kind of was like mm -hmm. clicked for me that, that that would make sense in the book where I already had a ghost, that it would be the cemetery and the, and there was so much about the town anyway. And there's like, I, I that's with the history, like who would care about the things that I was obsessed about, which is like this town right now or to, in 2014 and this town a hundred, 130 years ago it's like the, the people who, who were either there or have the, the dead people in the town so i tried that out i was worried about doing it um because lincoln and the bardo had been out like maybe the year before when i started doing that and i love lincoln and the bardo but um so i showed it to some friends and they were like it, this is all you and it's a different story and it's sure you is. Know, you, you're gonna it's so it's just nothing um it so i, I both was scared to do it and then once i did it it like made perfect sense to me so once i had those ghosts mm -hmm. I, and the cemetery that was the and i then i had to divide the divide between the ghosts in the cemetery who were the narrators and then the ghost ernest harold baines who is really like with the family in the house um and luckily ernest harold baines really was cremated so that <laughs> um really helped me just um like okay well there's a difference here there's ghosts in the cemetery and then there's Ernest Hell Baines who was cremated and sprinkled in the park um and so I was able to make that joke which just often I'll just make a joke and then the plot comes from there so I first probably just made the joke about like he's got different like so in the book people who are cremated are doomed or or gifted whatever you however you want to think about it to walk the town for the rest of eternity and then the people who are in the cemetery are like they're stuck there to sit there and gossip and watch everything like like they're watching television um and so they have different sort of modes of the afterlife and um that was the first rule and then from there because i'm there's a bit of a mystery going on in the book mm -hmm um and the ghosts know everything within town limits um i had to come up with rules about why they're not solving the mystery for us um so this i talked through a lot with my agent about 
um, I think she's a little witchy, um, my <laughs> agent, Katie Graham, who I love. And so she was very useful of having these conversations about like, well, you know, of course, ghosts don't solve everything for us. Otherwise, we would just like always have psychics on the hotline. And then, you know, if you really believe in ghosts, like why aren't they solving everything for us? And so I had to kind of come up with, you know, my own logic in the book and that both I think the things that guided me most is that they there had to be consequences for them meddling too much in the living that they really want to help um because and then the other thing is thinking about how much they really love the living that was even though that's that's yeah i guess that is the really the first rule of there's a so there's like a thousand or two three thousand i think lists and you only get the first couple rules or some random rules in there but um but but figuring out that they love the living and that they like don't judge us and that they um they really want everyone to have a second chance and to live as like sort of take as much advantage of life as possible because they just really want to be alive for one more day like some of them just want to like eat a chocolate cake or like go for a run or or whatever they want they, they want to take advantage of one more day so they feel like every day that we're still alive is is precious um and and those so loving the living and then um and then not being able to meddle were the things that that were the most important rules that I set for myself yeah and and so I love every time a ghost speaks um we get a, a birthday and a death day and so that comes from um from living in the cemetery so I lived in the cemetery <laughs> um you know, before I was really had the idea to write a book that was set in the cemetery, but I lived in the cemetery, lived with my dog Harvey in, in this groundskeeper's house and walked him every day. And, you know, as I'm waiting for him to do his business, I'm just reading the cemetery. Um, and so looking at the gravestones every day, and I felt like I was always trying to pay attention to when people lived and died. So I could just think about them, you know, as I'm, I was just kind of and then I'm a, like a baby writer trying to think about stories all the time. Um, and so I became like really interested in reading gravestones at that point. Um, so that also happened as soon as I, um, that was something that I thought naturally do. Like it's part of their name because it's right there when you read them right. all the time. Right, yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And then, of course, this is like such a quirky and wonderful and funny book. But the thing that you notice as a reader right away is that there are so many ghosts who were born in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, so I definitely um, tried to balance death dates um, across like whenever the town began, but I think the ghosts that died more recently are more invested in what's going on in the town. Yeah. Um, 
and also because there is there are ways as as i explained in the rules that you may not be a ghost anymore so like absalom kelsey the oldest ghost is still around in the graveyard and i think part of it is because he still has descendants in the town and so he's still able to be really invested in the living so once you stop being invested in the living in the town the ghosts move on to another place um well, that may be i hope they're be. all reunited with their pets <laughs> <laughs> well i didn't really want to solve totally the like what happens when we die just a little bit, just like a little yeah, bit. Yeah, just a little bit. Like this is one, and I don't think it's purgatory either. Like, like it's purgatory in like in the Bardo, but I, I did not imagine this at all. It's purgatory. It's just like one plane of existence. But once you're able to let go, and this happened in sort of a crazy way um, that now I'm only realizing this as I was, as I'm talking to you, is that when my dog Harvey died, who the one I'm talking about walking around the cemetery, I um. I went to see, I was like a wreck. I was not in a good place. And so I went to see a dog medium and, and she was, and, and now I get, I get two emails from strangers. I get emails that like, they like my book, um, or, <laughs> or they read my essay about going to see a dog medium. And can I please give them her information? I probably send like almost a hundred, like, here's where you find her. Um, Wendy at center for pet loss.com. Um, I'm going to tell my mom right away. <laughs> <laughs> it's it. She's, I mean, she's worth whatever she costs. I think it was like $75. Um, and so I talked to her and she was talking about for humans, they have such a hard time letting go, but for animals, cause they live so much in the moment that Harvey was not like holding on to either really, he, I mean, he missed me and loved me, but it was so much easier for him that he was just like soaring now and he was free and he was not like, he, he, he like was still connected with me, but he was also just like, he was letting go. It's in, he, she said, it's so much easier for animals. He's soaring now. He's like a bald eagle. And I love that. And, and I love the idea that like, yeah, Harvey didn't have a bucket list. <laughs> like, yeah. like all of these things that needed to be resolved. Yeah. So uh, it helped me so much that it wasn't like he's in heaven and he's thinking about you all the time. He's, which helped me not, or he's waiting for you. Like the rainbow bridge that people always say is comforting. That's, that's so painful. That's worse. That's so bad. He's just sitting there at the end of the bridge waiting for you to walk over. Like, oh my God, what could be more horrible for me to say? Awful. Like, should I go on the rainbow bridge right now if he's waiting there, you know? <laughs> and, and I would be like, I can imagine when my mom's dog died that she'd be like I'm coming <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um but I love that the idea that the thing to admire about animals and the, the thing that all of the people of Everton admire about animals living and dead mm -hmm. is that they are all present yeah yeah and that letting go is not hard for them yeah. And that's like, if you've ever accidentally kicked your dog, they're not like, you kicked me. They're like, oh my God, sorry, was I in your way? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not that I, I accident, always accidentally, <laughs> we never kick a dog, obviously. Annie, this is so interesting to me though, because when I was asking you about the ghosts born in the 80s and 90s, what I thought you were going to say was that, it illustrates the 
impact of the opioid crisis in New Hampshire. Oh yeah, that's part of it too. Yes, I was thinking the book is about is like sort of the opioid crisis leaked in as I'm writing about this real place, and so I had to have. Um, so I guess there, there's two reasons that there are ghosts that are that are um, that whether or not they were born in the 80s or 90s, but that died more recently. So so there are some people in who who lived you know until their 80s, but they they died recently. But then there are a bunch of young young ghosts who didn't um, didn't live who who lived until they were you know 24 or something. Um, and that is because those are generally people that um, that were lost to the opioid crisis, and that um, became part of the book as I was writing, which I did not intend to write about at all. But um, as I'm researching the town, it became something that felt like true to life, and I felt like I sort of had had to do it or or wanted to to address it. I don't really feel like I have to do anything because <laughs> yeah. Because I'm yeah, not that type of writer that's trying to get like, but I'm trying to get emotional truth, not uh -huh. not real truth, and that felt like something that is emotionally true to the people in the cemetery. Um, yeah, I, and it's I think it adds a layer of you know so so the story focuses on Emma, the living woman, who returns to her family home, um, and becomes a substitute teacher, but. Her brother, Augie, is a recovering addict and her best friend from high school, like the kind that you're obsessed with and um, feels like a romantic relationship partly, is also grappling with addiction. Depicting the harms that come from addiction is such an interesting counterbalance to the idea that there are all of these animals that people are trying to domesticate. I think there's something interesting that you you are getting at that I that I haven't really thought about. But the book is so much. So the book is like the real heart of the story is the young woman comes home to take care of her dying father. She was born with a slight healing touch in her hands. And she has been sort of told all her life that she is special and that she's gonna heal people. Um, and that this, so that's the magic element in the book, but she has come home, she's to her dying father who's hallucinating and he's suffering from sort of brain disease that the doctors don't really know how to make sense of, but they know that he's not long for this world. Um, and she knows that if she ever really had like whatever healing touch she has or had, it was it would never be enough to save her father from this brain disease. And then at the same time, her brother has been suffering um, with an addiction problem for uh, several years and has gone to rehab a couple times. And she's been out in California with this with this healing touch and knowing that she can do nothing about that either. And so she's also just stayed away completely from, um, she's kind of, I think she's failed her brother in that way, just not being around, um, which is something that sort of gets worked out in the book. But I think, and I've never thought about um, how the animals and how the opioid crisis are connected or the domestication stuff, but I think that there's a lot about caretaking 
and there's a lot about wanting to help people and want and wanting to take care of animals and wanting to control them and and then there's a lot about um parenting but taking care of your parents and then how they have tried to take care of you and do the best for you and sort of this wanting the best for your loved ones um you and also letting people make their own decisions and and that's sort of like what maybe what you can learn from trying to domesticate you know domesticate a fox that there's a, there's limits to how much you can control someone else's choices you're not going to stop a fox from like you know ripping up a pillow or whatever and and then there are limits to how you can control your adult children and then there are limits when you're an adult children to how much you can control your parents which is from from my sort of where i sit like more something that i've struggled with um as trying to figure out you know how do i reason with my parents about certain things mm -hmm. um and that is that is an interesting it was one of the main things that i was thinking about and struggling with is um is just realizing as you become an adult that you think like as you're a kid you're like once i'm an adult i'll be this all powerful and everyone will listen to me and and then you realize and also that you when you're a kid your parents are perfect and oh, then yeah. you realize that well they're powerless against the world and so are you and you're um and you can't save them from from any from dying um and so i think that there's a lot there that is like touching each other in ways that is um kind of the fun part of writing something that uh where you have a lot of things going on that they they do um they do interact with each other in ways even even in ways that i don't fully realize sometimes and i know there is this book is a crazy book to talk about because there is i did want a book that was sort of overstuffed and you're looking at a lot of different things and then it, uh, like a John Irving novel all comes together in the end. Um, and so there are ways that I've really thought about how how everything comes together and has to all interact. And then there are other things that I'm like, oh, those are things that I I think are related um, through a theme of caretaking or something. But like but through having these conversations, it's like, oh, OK, I, I understand it on a deeper level now than I think I even did before. Yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, you really make this town come alive too, not just the dead people. <laughs> and you write so, so, you have so many funny scenes at the elementary school where Emma teaches um, and the community theater production of Titanic the musical with an exclamation <laughs> point. Well, the kids, I mean, the kids are my, probably my favorite scenes to write or anything with the kids because I love writing children and the um, funny things that they say. And and also they are, what the dead people in the town care about the most is people getting second chances. Um, and sort of the younger you are, the more they love you and care about you because that's, you know, they all want one, one more day alive, but they want the children to have as many days as possible. And so Clive, the father that's dying in the book, I wanted him to be young like not uh i thought a lot about and i wrote this pre-covid or you know i edited a lot of it after covid but i thought a lot about what's like what's an acceptable death and what's an unacceptable death and a child's death is always an unacceptable death and then the older you get you know if you will go to a 91 year old's funeral like people are much more comfortable at the whole 
thing. They're they're they can sure. tell more jokes and it can be more of a celebration of life and not like a, this is a horrible tragedy. So Clive is 68, which is short. A lot of people would say that's too short, but it's also, you know, not not oh, the horrible tragedy in the same way that, you know, maybe a 14 year old's death would be. So the children are both like sort of the hope for the future and also the the people that that they that the cemetery wants to protect the most um and that that both added a lot of humor and also me trying to figure out you know who is allowed to be hurt in this book and the children have to be protected at all costs mm. I, I love that and then of course in terms of being heard you also moses the dog gets a little bit of <laughs> um a spotlight as well and Rasputin the fox yeah a little bit about like yeah making them characters characters like characters so I realized um that if if the people the dead people in the town could hear anybody's thoughts um that I could have a lot of fun with that so very early on I had Moses as point of view um, and it's just here and there, although there was at one point, there was a whole chapter and I, I forget if it was my agent or my editor, who's like, that's too much dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but it took me actually a long time until I think like after we sold the book, after I was editing for a while to realize like, why doesn't the Fox have a point of view? <laughs> um, if I could like, because it was so easy for me to jump right into the dog's head. And I was like, obviously here's what he's thinking. He gets mm-hmm. to a new, new field and it was like, great place, smells amazing. But the Fox was much more like how you would put a Fox in a regular book that just like, there's a Fox, hello. He's gonna do all these crazy things, but you're never gonna know what he's thinking. And then, um, and then I realized at some point I clicked, I was like, oh wait, of course I can have his point of view. And wouldn't that be fun to have something that's half wild, half, and that again, I always go too far and then have to edit back. Um, so originally, and this is not appear in the book, the Fox is from Russia, um, which is where these, there are real foxes um, domesticated. There was a whole domestication process, a uh, project that, um, that went on starting in the 60s, I think. Um, And so this fox originally arrived speaking tons and tons of Russian swears. Um, And my brother, thankfully, is no longer living in Russia, but had had been living in Russia for the past several years. And so he who had not read any of the book did not know what I'm writing about. I was always WhatsApping him and saying, all right, how do you say (laughs) this Russian swear? And he was always saying, you know, the Russian swear or the, is, is always much, much worse than you would think you would say to someone you, you dislike. So he would be like this whole string of horrible things that that the, the fox would be saying to um, the mother in the book. She was his main. So that, that you know, I, I went way too far and then I had to. So, so now the fox still has some um, still has some great lines, but it's much much less, which is sort of how I write anyway. Um, You'll have to um, give us deleted scenes at some point. <laughs> it was really fun to ask my brother, to involve my brother in any way, but. That's great, Annie. Unlikely animals. I feel like we barely even scratched the surface, but this has been um, a great talk. And before we go, 
would you like to recommend some books for us? So I've just read a bunch of good ones. Um, I actually have to recommend a book that won't come out until August based on what we've been talking about. Um, good Grief by E.B. Bartels, which is about um, losing, sort of how we, we um, mourn our pets after they, not just dogs, but um, all pets, cats, birds. Um, so that one comes out in August and actually my dog Harvey makes an appearance in it, a very brief paragraph about, um, about how I mourned him. Um, and so that one is, I think, uh, going to be helpful for a lot of people. And it's also just super entertaining and well-researched. Um, then I read um, How High We Go in the Dark um, by Sequoia Nagamatsu. Mm -hmm. um, and that I thought was so inventive. And I just really appreciated how, um, how sort of wild his imagination is. And that people asked me if that was too bleak. And I, I, I didn't find it too bleak because it was so inventive. Um, and then the last, I guess I just listened to yesterday, the notes on an execution. Um, and I love that. And I thought that that was a really good audiobook. I've been listening to a Eight lot of audio books. Yeah, really good audiobook. So um, those are my, those are my main recs right now. Well, that's perfect. Thank you so much, Annie. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. I know you a little better now. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.